I am one of the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the shadows of the United States. To all, to all the dreamers, dreamers out, out there, we stand, we stand with you. You're listening to A is for America, a podcast from America's Voice, hosted by Joe Sudbay and Van Lee. Hello, and welcome to A is for America, a weekly deep dive podcast where we talk to allies, advocates, and activists on the front lines of a changing America. My name's Joe Sudbay. I'm in Washington, D.C. And my name is Van Lee here in San Jose, California. Today, we'll be speaking to Sylvia Manzano from Latino Decisions, who will be talking to us about everything post-midterm elections, from new American vote turnout to toss-up races and how they're still being called, to how we can continue to build our power in the future. But more about that in a second. One non-election thing that we did want to mention this week was Ronald Vitello's nomination to be the Permanent Director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. He used to be a top official over at Customs and Border Protection, and he's currently the Acting Director of ICE. Now he needs a Senate confirmation to be the permanent head. And some have said that he's a quieter leader, supposedly not as pugnacious as his predecessor, Thomas Homan, whom we've talked about many times here at this podcast. But to be clear, Vitell is an extremist. He was called out many times yesterday for uh, during his Senate hearing for a tweet he once sent out calling the Democrats the neo-Klanist party. I don't even know what kind of sense that makes. This year, he was part of FAIR's Hold Your Feet to the Fire event on Radio Row. FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, is, of course, a hate group. And he said he didn't know that when he attended the event, but Senator Gary Peters really lit into him about how shouldn't he know these kinds of things? Isn't it his job to know? Isn't it his job to not consort with hate groups when he is a top government official? So we do want to applaud Senator Peters as well as others like Kamala Harris and Maggie Hassan and Doug Jones for trying to take Vitello to task. But the most disturbing thing about the Senate hearing yesterday was all the stuff about uh, the separation of families, which Vitello presided over during his term as acting ICE director. So Vitello defended family separations and wouldn't rule out bringing them back in the future. He ignored what Senator said about family separation being incredibly detrimental for children. And his main remorse, if you can call it that, over the whole thing seemed to be the fact that there was such a public outcry over family separations, rather than realizing that this was a Trump administration policy that was awful and harmful and should never be repeated. So suffice to say, we are recommending that the Senate not confirm Vitello to be permanent ICE director, as he is clearly going to be yet another Trump administration official who carries out horrendous policies without questioning the deep harm or even the overall effectiveness of such an action. Absolutely disgusting that anyone can sit there and even remotely defend that policy is just so egregious. And of course, he works for Kirsten Nielsen, the current Secretary of Homeland Security, who may be losing her job. We don't know. Trump can't stand her because she's not doing bad enough. She put her whole career on the line to you know, take on this policy of defending the separation, kidnapping of children from their parents. She lied to the American people about it. They're all they're all disgusting. Something has to change. We know something has to change in the way this operation runs. Yeah, our executive director, Frank Sherry, had a great tweet where he was like, oh, Kirsten Nielsen might be fired. At least she's getting out with her dignity intact. Which, as you know, Joe, is hilarious because she is not. She is going to be in the history books as someone 
who tore children away from their parents and failed to reunite them. And in the end, if the rumors are true, she is going to be deposed as unceremoniously as anyone. Trump expects loyalty, but he gives none. And if Kirsten Nielsen is expecting any kind of a reward for what she's done, for her work towing the line during the Trump administration's awful family separation policy, she is not getting it. And hopefully there will be some accountability once the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives in January. And following up on, on that, Van, like the idea that Democrats are taking control is such, it's really, you know, I still think it's sinking in and votes are still being counted. You know, last night, California 45 was called. Mimi Walters has gone down to defeat against Katie Porter. There are, there's on circulating on Twitter, there's a, a map of Orange County, which used to be reliably Republican. And in 2016, there were there six seats in Orange County, two were Democrat. All six are now um, Democrat. All six. Repu the Republicans lost across the board. Two open seats and two incumbents were lost. Dana Rohrbacher. Mimi Walters. Jeff Denham has lost up in uh, Central Valley. And it's actually gotten close with David Valadao. California was just such a rebuke of Trump and Trumpism. And this, the elections were a, a, re, a rebuke too. Uh, we did election eve polling. We've talked about it. Our election eve polling, uh, I, I just thought I was really excited about it this year because we called it the American Election Eve poll. And we looked at how African American, Asian American, Asian American and Pacific Islander, Latino, Native American and white voters were engaged in the midterms. And we did it with um, in Latino Decisions, the African American Research Collaborative, Asian American Decisions, and Laura Evans from the University of Washington helped us figure out um, the Native American portion. And what I like to do, we're going to talk to Sylvia. I'm going to play that. We're going to play that uh, interview in just a minute. But before we do, Van, the thing that got me, I, I geek out about this stuff, as you know, but I just want to read the list of groups that participated with us on this project, because it is such an impressive list of progressive organizations. AAPI Civic Engagement, Engagement Fund. Advancement Project, America Votes, America's Voice, AAPI Health Forum, Demos, Race Forward, um, which is at the Center for Social Inclusion, National Urban League, Faith in Action, Indivisible, Mi Familia Vota, Move On, NAACP, National Congress of American Indians, SEIU, and Unidos U.S. Yeah, it was a monster to get all their logos on our press materials. It was, but, but... The fact that we could was just like, it's great. It was just a great collaborative effort. Our colleague, Matt Hildreth, did a lot of the work to make sure it came together. And the partners were great, provided great input on the questions and what we needed to find out. And as you'll hear from Sylvia, who was one of the principals at Latino Decisions, we got amazing information. We did two samples, two well, two two kind of polls, really. There were six state polls, and then there was a battleground poll, 70 uh, districts combined into like a national sample. So let's play the interview with Sylvia, because I think it's just such great information. And we've, we've learned a lot already, and we'll continue to learn a lot from the data we collected. Here's Sylvia Manzano. Well, hello, everyone. This is Joe Sudbay. And right now, I'm joined by Sylvia Manzano, who is a principal at Latino Decisions, the polling firm that we've worked with very close. I've worked with Sylvia for years. Um, 
she has a PhD in political science from the University of Arizona. She is based in Texas, and we have a lot to talk about. Welcome to A is for America, Sylvia. Thanks, Joe. So you were integrally involved in the um, American Election Eve poll. First, before we get into it, talk to us a little bit. Explain to everybody the different components of that poll, because it was actually a very big, big poll with a lot of different pieces. It was. So we've been doing Election Eve since 2010, since, actually no, since 2008 when Latino Decisions first uh, formed. But um, this was by far our most ambitious project. So we worked with a lot of great partners, including America's Voice, but something of this scope doesn't happen without a lot of um, really committed partners. So I want to make sure that I say that. But yeah, this was by far the most ambitious project and most comprehensive. In total, we interviewed 9,425 Americans who voted um, between November 1st and, I'm sorry, yeah, November 1st and November 6th. So it was, you know, a Herculean effort on the the part of our, you know, the the operation side of of things. Um, And we had several different components. So we had a we had a, a battleground national sample, and so one thing that we have that's different than what you see in the national exit poll or the AP Fox exit poll is that um, when you see their overall totals, that's overall in the country, you know, whether it's the most lopsided or most competitive. And our national sample includes only the most competitive districts. Um, so that's that's a distinction. And then we also had um, specific state samples for six states, including um, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, California, and Florida, uh, and Georgia. Um, and then we also had um, group-specific sampling. So we had an N of 600 of Latinos, of African Americans, of AAPI, a national sample of 600 of Native Americans, which is um, really, really quite an accomplishment, really unusual to have that scope included in a national um, election survey. And then we also had um, 600 white non-Hispanic respondents. So our ability to make comparisons across groups and then, you know, at the different sort of um, political parameters with respect to battleground versus state is really, um, was really a contribution that we're really excited to be part of. Really, really great stuff. And let's dig in a little bit. First of all, you mentioned some of the other partners. Latino Decision was joined by Asian American Decisions, the African American Research Collaborative, American Decisions. And then it was the Poll was sponsored by a whole group of progressive organizations, and uh, we've talked about that, and we'll get into that a little more. But one of the things I wanted to just follow up on, and you said you you know uh, you used the term called M six hundred, which which is but what's really important is what you did in the poll was to and I I use lame I use you know I as a non political scientist use terms like you had a like a full sample of uh, Latino voters, a full sample of AAPI voters in, in that the um, and it's something that does isn't done in other polling. And it's something we've encountered a lot. We've seen You know, we see a lot of polls and particularly the exit polls. And and one of the reasons we do the election eve poll is because the election, the exit polls, which so many of the networks use, don't capture um, groups of color. They they and it's partly based on how you describe when the, when they collect their data. They don't collect it every everywhere for exit polls. They just get it 
kind of in swing your districts. So tell us a little bit about the difference between what this poll is and what the exit polls are and what why those samples that you mentioned matter so much. Okay, so a couple things. One, I want to make sure that people know that the exit poll, the the, any, the national exit poll that you see that's sponsored by um, CNN and the other major media outlets, except for the AP and Fox, which are now doing their own thing. And my understanding is that AP Fox will be joined by Washington Post in 2020 with this other um, election pro uh, survey endeavor. That the exit poll itself today is not, um, I think, what maybe people envision of um, people walking out of the poll and actually taking a survey. Um, a large share of the national exit poll has to happen before the election um, because, you know, half of voters, you know, across the country vote before election day. And then you also have lots of states where people, uh, I think more and more of the country is now aware, where people vote by mail. So there's not a place to exit from, right, and say like Colorado where people vote by mail. So um, even though it's called the exit poll, um, it's kind of a misnomer in terms of, you know, uh, literally it's not a an exit poll for all people who take that poll. Um, so what they do, right, is they take a sample of people who are um, at different precincts in, in various parts of the country, um, sometimes all states, sometimes not all states, depending on the, the design that they've got. Um, and they are looking for overall statewide um, accuracy, right? That's their main objective is to get the overall state breakdown. Um, they're not trying to get representative samples of African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, or, you know, other subgroups. What they're looking for is accuracy in the, really in the overall outcome, but also in um, just the, you know, the way the vote breaks down. Um, and that's not what we're doing. Um, we're most interested in trying to get a, a sample that is reflective of the active Latino electorate, of the, of the active African-American electorate, of the active active, you know, various group elect electorate. So what we do is, right, we stratify geographically. So in a place like California, like Texas, Florida, especially, right, the Hispanic population isn't evenly distributed across Florida, right? It's clustered in South Florida and then in Orange County, right, up in um, the Orlando area. Similarly in other states, right? Um, but so when we survey the Latino population, we make sure that we're getting an accurate um an accurate sample in terms of them being representative of the Latino population geographically, um, but also in terms of language, right, that the survey is available in language of their preference, and then by other demographic factors um, as well. And with the exits, you know, if they, you know, a couple years ago, it came out that there were, that their Texas exit poll had no surveys at all um, from the Rio Grande Valley, or maybe had one precinct. Um, and then there have been other times where, you know, we find out their Latino sample is entirely suburban, which is not at all representative of the Latino population in Texas. So with respect to what we're trying to do, it, it's different, right? It's, it's different things. But I think that um, because the way that the, elects, the exit polls are presented in tandem with election results on TV, I think that people accept it as fact, right, as opposed right. to this is just a poll. <laughs> and so um, they're really seen as the standard and people use them to compare and consider any other poll a challenge to the exits when in fact it's just one of, of different polls. It's just that that one got reported on election night and I think it's, it's seen as um, coming in with the election results as fact. And 
you know, as we know, votes are still being counted in in a number of in a number of states. Right, and 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 in doing so, and in, and when the networks and others present that data as fact, and it's inaccurately um, measures how uh, groups like Latinos, AAPI, Amer- African American voters are feeling, it it does a disservice, really, and that's one of the reasons these this election eve poll is so important. And this election eve poll really had some really intense findings about Donald Trump, and like they really his. His rhetoric, his toxic rhetoric, was noticed and motivated. It really feel, seemed like it motivated voters. What What were some of the takeaways you got from how voters were responding to Trump and his rhetoric? Well, I think that, I mean, it was what we expected with respect to Latinos and African Americans and basically with non-white voters, Um so we asked, you know, the overall just approval, do you overall approve or disapprove of the job that he's doing? And, you know, over, you know, over two thirds of blacks, Hispanics and um, API all say that, you know, they, they disapprove. But, you know, one thing that was interesting is we found that white women um, were much more likely to express opinions that were similar to Latinos, blacks and Asians when it came to disapproval. Um, other factors like has... Trump ever said anything that made you feel angry, that made you feel disrespected. Um, those factors rang, I mean, pretty, pretty high. You know, you're talking 72% of Latinos said they felt disrespected by Trump, 83% of blacks, 67% of AAPI, um, and then 47% of whites overall. But it was, um, it was higher for white women. I should get that number for you and mention it before we, before we move on. But right. I mean, the, the sting didn't go away, I think is, is a short way to say it, that we heard him say these things, you know, when he campaigned, and then um, we've, we've heard it throughout his presidency, um, and not, not just rhetoric, like things that he has said, there's also things that he has done, right, um, thinking in particular about um, the devastation in, in Puerto Rico, and just the, the callousness of the response has, has been really, um, you know, hard to swallow for, for a lot of, for a lot of Americans in general, but, you know, um, Latinos who are, you know, directly affected and have family who are, you know, still still contending with that situation. And so the question about has Trump ever, it's not just has he ever said anything to make you angry, it is anything he said or did. So I think that um, Americans and, um, you know, Americans of all, of all stripes are rec- completely recognize the fact that it's not just, you know, things that he says, sticks and stones may break my bones. It's not just talk, that there's there's things that he has done um, as the president of the country that have had a really strong negative impact on them personally or on people they care about or, you know, just the state of affairs in, in the country. Oh, and I wanted to mention the thing about white women that I said earlier, that they were much more similar to minorities in terms of their negative feelings about Trump. So 68% of white women said that they felt that Trump had said or done something to make them feel um, angry, and 59% said that he had said or done something that made them feel disrespected. So um, I think that it's pretty well established in the national narrative that Trump was a drag on the Republican Party, and um, all of our evidence shows that 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 indeed was the case. And in fact, Trump made his the 2018 Republican campaign message about immigration 
uh, Stephen Miller announced that that would be the case early on. It's what how Trump thought he won in 2016. And they ran negative ads all over the place. All the Republican committees did. They really doubled down. And then towards the end, he made the whole campaign, his closing message about the caravan and the fear of immigrants and and really you know, exacerbated all those things he'd been talking about along the way. One of the things I was struck by in your polling um, was we, you know, you had been tracking, Latino Decisions had been doing um, tracking polls on through the every week with Naleo to check, to gauge how engaged voters were. And I was struck, um, so we know that it seemed like that sort of ticked up. But one of the things that really struck me is how many people encouraged friends or family to register vote to register or to vote in the midterms that's night number seems pretty high yeah we we did get that um we saw that trend um go up but i mean it was, so we did see that trend go up so overall um 77 percent of latinos who voted told us they had encouraged their friends or family to register and vote in this election. Um, so 77% is high, but especially for, again, especially for a midterm, um, when we know that um, turnout nationally, but especially for Latinos um, is is lower. We also saw it at 79% for African-American voters, 75% for API voters, um, and it was 66% for white and 66% for Native American voters. So, um, Minority voters were actually doing um, more mobilizing um, among their friends and family compared to others. And from a political science perspective, that seems, you know, and that just seems like um, that I would imagine that that's higher than it usually is. I don't know if it's it's been tested over the years, but it's, it does feel like the threat of Trump has encouraged more people. More people seem to understand that. To make change, you have to participate in the political process. Am I just, you know, do you get that sense at all? I don't want to. I know it. that we asked the question of Latinos in um, in 2016. We may have asked in 2014, but I know it's higher than the 2016 number that we had. Um, and it, yes, I do think that anti-Trump mobilization is a factor, but I also think it's really important to. Um, acknowledge the fact that there was much more spending on Latino mobilization in this campaign cycle than we've seen in the past. Um, whether it was uh, candidate campaigns or um, uh, local community groups or nonprofits, that sort of thing, there was much more mobilization in states that normally don't get that kind of attention. So Texas and California, which are so terribly lopsided, right? Um, often don't get a lot of uh, don't get a lot of mobilization because you know both teams have already sort of decided you know we're gonna win here and then the other side is sort of you know they've reached like detente right the Republicans say well we're not going to compete in California and the Democrats saying eh, we're not going to compete in Texas um, but this year was different and so there was much more um, engagement with um, with Latino voters and getting Latino registration so um, some of this is organic, right? And, and that would take much longer to sort of tease out. But some of this for sure is, is, is organic, right? People just recognizing the reality of what's going on and, and seeing what's, uh, what they don't like in the country. You know, over, over half of, of all racial groups said they felt like Trump and the Republicans were dividing us from each other as Americans, and they didn't like that. But 
some of that conversation that people are having is likely people talking about, hey, somebody came to my door and asked me to vote. Um, I, I know I had a conversation with a number of people who said, you know, no one has ever come to my door before. Um, and so um, the, the higher number is uh, a reflection of Latino engagement, but it's also a reflection of, you know, people, campaigns and um, interest groups and um, parties or wh whoever it was um, spending the time to go and to go and talk to these voters. Well, and that is something that, you know, seems like it should be so obvious, but it has been a problem in the past. The lack of um, the lack of engagement. And it's particularly true um, in your home state. And I want to talk about Texas a little bit before I let you go, Sylvia, because, you know, for so long, uh, Texas was ignored. Latino voters were overlooked. Latinos decisions has on a number of occasions identified the number of unregistered voters by state to show the votes that are left on the table. In Texas, we've always heard it's not so much a red state, it's a non-voting state. Something has changed now, and Texas saw increased Latino turnout, much more engagement, and it's really saw a lot of changes up and down the ticket. Now, Beto O'Rourke didn't win, but a lot of folks won at the local level. You And you specifically poll Texas, Latino decisions poll Texas, Latinos in Texas. What's your sense of what is happening in your state? So first of all, in the House vote, I just want to make clear, because I know a lot of people are quoting the, um, the national exits in the Statewide in the House race, uh, in House races, seventy percent of Latinos voted for uh, Democratic candidates. Um, Eighty-four percent of Blacks voted for Democratic candidates, and sixty-two percent of Asians voted for Democratic candidates. And I wanted to start there because um, Texas picked up uh, Democrats picked up two Democratic seats, um, one in Dallas and one in um, Houston, and. And those seats are in, in very diverse districts. And so the combination of Latino, Black, and API voters in those districts was was important uh, to those victories. And then in the Senate race, 74% um, of Latinos voted for O'Rourke, 68% of Blacks, and 66% of API voters. Um, I know that the exits say that it's 64%, but that's off by 10. That, that's quite a bit. Actually, even that AP Fox poll um which is run through experts out of the University of Chicago. They're much closer to ours. They're actually within the margin of error of ours. They show 69% um, of Latinos, 69 or 70% voting for O'Rourke. So the exits, the exits are just off on that. Um, there was just much more engagement and much more investment in Texas. Um, and it was happening not just, you know, three weeks before the election. And while the O'Rourke campaign absolutely... Um, uh, spent a lot of money, did a lot of um, field work. There were also other organizations. Um, the Texas Organizing Project is one who also just saw more, um, uh, you know, county, uh, uh, like registrar voters, um, just more voter education in general is, is the phrase I'm looking for. So there was uh, certainly more awareness and more engagement um, going on. And... Um, you're right, like people didn't really invest in Texas. In fact, those two seats that the Democrats picked up um, are seats that in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton won those um, those congressional districts, but those two Republicans had run unopposed. Um, Culberson and Sessions had run unopposed in 2016. And so I think um, 
you know, someone, you know, lot, lots of people, I think, paid attention to that and, and realized, like, hey, you know, we've got some some really big opportunities. And they picked up there in the state house. You know, there's a lot of things that happen that are not going to bubble up to the national news or not as exciting or interesting. But, um, you know, in the state house, um, Dallas County only has two Republican um, state representatives anymore. Um, they, they used to have 12, and they're down to two. Um, and these are districts that that they drew, right? Um, right, right. That, that's, that's an important thing. They picked up 12 House seats in the House of Representatives. And as you mentioned, same thing is true for the um, congressional seats. Sylvia, um, your colleague Matt Barreto put together, uh, one of his students put together, you know, the, the, the districts that Republicans won by, you know, under 55%. And there were several in Texas that were surprising. McCall in Texas 10, only just got over 50%. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Texas 21, it was 51%. In Carter in 31. Like, there were about five districts in Texas, and including the one that's still being counted, Texas 23, Gina Ortiz-Jones against Will Hurd, that are much, much closer than anyone thought. And the key thing is that those were all heavily gerrymandered districts. And they were all trending in that direction. I mean, I think we want to be careful to overstate, um, you know, because I think there's people who are happy to say, like, oh, well, this doesn't count. That was just, you know, the overwork right. factor. Um, but actually, you know, many of those uh, counties were trending in that direction over the last couple of, of elections. Um, there was something else I was going to say, and, and it, it escapes me. Oh, 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 I know what it was going to be. You know, I... You know, for many, many years, I get asked, when is Texas, when are Latinos going to turn Texas blue? As if we have some secret date marked on our calendars. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I can't tell you, but one day we're going to do it and you're going to be surprised. Um, and that's not how it is, you know. Um, and if that day ever happens, and I don't know that it will, you know, maybe Texas just becomes a, uh, you know, a light purple or, or becomes light red. I don't know, you know, pink. I, I, I'm not sure. But I will say that I, I would not expect that, um it's going to be all statewide offices in one fell swoop. Um, it would have to, you know, turn turn a little light. You know, have to have to go pinker first to get to purple before um, before it would, would turn blue. You know, I, I think that that one seat in, in uh, Alabama, for example, I don't think anybody says Alabama's blue because they have a Democratic senator. No, what it shows you is is the potential electorate that's there. Um, and there's probably things that bubbled under the surface before that happened. And and here I think that we're seeing that, you know, in um, places outside of the Rio Grande Valley and El Paso, which we know are going to always, you know, produce, have, have not always, but have a long, long uh, tradition of, of sending uh, Democrats to, to office outside of those places. We're seeing, um, we're seeing changes in the state legislature and the countywide offices, um, we're seeing it a little bit more in, in the suburban uh, counties. Um, so I think that, you know, those are those are all trends to watch for. And um, while Democrats have certainly been neglectful, I think it's fair to say that Republicans maybe haven't been as, um, haven't really nurtured their base in the way that they could in the past, that they have in the past. So, um, you know, attacking Latinos, means attacking, you know, a quarter to a third of your electorate in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not quite, you know, that, that that is a repellent. That's not going to grow your party. Um, you're, you're kind of seeing the demise of the Latino Republican elected official 
Um, there's only one Hispanic Republican who is going back to the state house. There's only one Hispanic Republican left in the state Senate. Um, you think about congressional seats, look in, in Florida, Corbello and, well, Ileana retired, but Corbello and Ileana were replaced by Democrats. It's not, you know, Hispanic Republicans. California, um, I think they have one or zero Hispanic Republicans left in their state legislature. So, you know, as the party has um, pushed, made Latinos feel unwelcome, you know, a question we've asked over and over, made Latinos feel unwelcome and kind of pushed them out of the party, um, we're seeing that reflected in among elected officials too. Well, and it, it's it's also, it goes back to what you said earlier too about investment. And you, you mentioned Texan or, organizing. There are a number of other groups, Jolt Texas and Cambio that were doing work, down, that was doing work down on the border and just a lot of groups engaging folks. We saw the same thing in California. A lot of really great activism, uh, encouraging people to vote. And and looks like Democrats are going to pick up six House seats in California, maybe one more. But that's astounding. Orange County is now blue. I did see uh, yesterday uh, Tom Edsel, who writes at the New York Times, who I consider one of the purveyors of conventional wisdom, which is something we're always up against in D.C., is he wrote a piece that as long as Trump is president, blue Texas could actually happen. And <laughs> I thought, well, that's interesting to see it coming from him. And of course, it does matter because, you know, the National Democrats have long ignored the state. And we'll see if finally they're going to invest and realize that it's more than wishful thinking. And uh, uh, Christina Zinzun, I interviewed her on a radio show that I do. She runs Joel, Texas. And she said the road to a progressive America runs through Texas. Republicans truly understand that, which is why they've done so much to thwart participation in the process and keep people from voting. Voting. When Democrats figure it out, it really could change America, uh, and so we'll see about we'll see what we'll see. It makes your state a lot more interesting. That's for sure. You know, I, I just want to say something that I I read um, in the Ralston report. You know, um, out of Nevada, that you know Nevada is now um, you have two Democratic senators and a Democratic governor, and. Uh, he said, um, Nevada's blue, but it's not California blue, and that's okay. And I think that's a really good point for people to remember that, you know, California sort of held as the standard of what a blue state will or should look like, or if that's um, the goal. And I think that, you know, people can do um, blue in what suits their political culture and in a way that is reflective of their, you know, demographic, historical, the political, cultural milieu that they come from. So I think that, you know, um, part of the problem with, um, I mean, I know you're in D.C., but, you know, no offense, but <laughs> some of my best friends are in D.C. Um, but, you know, part of, part of the problem is that when um, people who come in to consult on campaigns or talk about this is how we should mobilize is that they have this uh, view of how can we make you like something else as opposed to Who's here? What do the voters here care about? What's important to them? You know, all the people who live along the border, um, talking about building a wall means something for them. Means you're going to eminent domain their property. Means you're sent, you know, it has real direct effects on them. When you talk about um, uh, health care, Medicaid has still not expanded in Texas or in Florida. Um, so thinking about the issues that matter and that will... Um, produce policies that reflect the interests and priorities of the communities that live in Texas or Florida or California, you know, um, 
they, they, they may vary a little. Um, and I just think that one thing that made a, a really big difference, and I think this is happening in Nevada too, and I, and I do hope you spend some time talking about them because what's going on in Nevada is really interesting. Um, but I think that part of what made um, Texas so successful is that um, people doing the engagement were were largely of Texas. Um, the O'Rourke campaign, you know, there were a bunch of dudes from El Paso <laughs> uh, who started up the the campaign, and there were a lot of you know a lot of uh, Texas women, from what I understand, who who were um, doing a lot of the infrastructure kind of work. And then you had groups like you mentioned, um, Jolt, and then. Um, um, the Texas Organizing Project. You had people who knew this community and or the different or the different types of communities, the the variation uh, within, and I think that that is is critical, right? It's it's not mobilizing to some Washington D.C. end. It's it's mobilizing to get you know the citizens what what they need, what they want, what's important to them. I couldn't agree more. It's one of it's it's always been my pet peeve in DC. I have many pet peeves about being in DC. It's just how folks here, you know, kind of like call them the DC professional Democrats view the world through their lens and think that it's a top down when all in Nevada we have talked about Nevada a lot on the on the podcast and we will again. Uh, Nevada really the work that's done in Nevada is you know, folks uh, led by Culinary 226 and, and, and a group of others going out and talking to people at their doors. Even the president of the of the National Union, Unite Here, D. Taylor, does door knocking so he can get a sense of what the voters are really talking about and what they really care about. And that is so important, uh, Sylvia. So we've been talking for a while. I could talk to you all day. And some, <laughs> and uh, I just want to um, thank you, Sylvia Manzano, for talking to us today on A is for America. The information that you've provided is available on the Latino Decisions website. Uh, there was a specific. What's the URL for the um, for the American Eve poll? You can go to LatinoVote2018.com. That's the easiest way. I think um, there's lots of different ways to get there, but LatinoVote2018.com is usually like the easiest uh, easiest way, and that'll get you to the results for all the different racial and ethnic groups, all the different states, all the different you know geographic and demographic parameters that we talked about. And we're all still digging into this data and looking at cross tabs, and we'll still continue to write reports and do follow ups. I know our um, our colleagues at um, the uh, Asian American uh, Research um, did um, Asian American Decisions did a, a call this week, and I think our friends at the African American Research Collaborative are doing a. Uh, polling call next week. So we're going to continue to dig into this, share the data with our friends, because it is among the best data that you can find about the electorate in 2018. And and I really appreciate the work you do, Sylvia, and really glad that you could join us today on A is for America. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure working with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for doing that interview, Joe. Anytime we're able to have someone on from Latino Decisions, I think it's so awesome and so educational. I thought it was great that you guys ended on Texas. Our Texas State Director, Mario Carrillo, has been on this podcast many times, highlighting Texas' continued progress toward being a bluer state. And we've played many interviews from groups organizing on the ground in Texas to make that a reality. So it's fantastic to further hear about that from Sylvia. Well, and it's something that we have um, picked up, Van, from Mario and the call and his colleagues. And obviously, you heard Sylvia, who's a, who's in Texas, really 
they really feel like things are changing and we've you know we've talked about this for a while that texas is a state that as i said it's called a red state but it's actually more of a non-voting state and once people start showing up and people participate and people are asked to participate which is happening more and more and these great groups are doing the work on the ground to make it happen texas starts to change and once texas changes america changes because this has been a last bastion for republicans they've always relied on it and they never had to spend money now texas is very much in play at the and that's going to shake things up for 2020 and beyond I want to thank everybody for listening to our podcast, A is for America, and my colleague Van Lee. Today, uh, we talk to folks on the front lines of a changing America, activists, allies, pollsters even, which was fun. You can find us on America's Voice um, on on Twitter and check out our blog at americasvoice.org. Lots of great information, constantly updating, a lot of great analysis of the elections, which we'll continue to provide. Until next week, this is Joe Sudbay signing off for A is for America, from America's Voice.